0: Because so oftentimes it's the stare of the snake that has us in the grasp that won't allow us to be free. Now some here today know the experience of being caught up in the grasp of an addiction. And and you know so very well that you cannot escape that grasp on your own. You know that's why some 900 plus people go through the the doors of of our, our, our Center for Spiritual Development across the street, dealing with recovery every week because they know that we can't break the stare of the snake on our own. It takes a higher power. And I've talked to people who've done something in the past that has them frozen in the present and hopeless regarding the future. Something that just has them so beaten down and, and, and their, their self-esteem so unhealthy that they can't see themselves as a beloved child of God. You know, when we are staring in the face of something that takes us away from that abundant life and only causes us to see ourselves as, as, as one that is, is doomed and cannot see that that Christ has to offer, we're staring In the eyes of the snake. Have you asked yourself lately why it is that some people who are so successful have taken their lives? We we can remember in the news just in the past several weeks about these very prominent successful people who've ended their lives. Perhaps we know uh, persons whom we were close to who, 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 who just got to the point that they couldn't see beyond the stare of the snake and the snake won. They ended a life and that's always tragic. You know clearly the biblical view of the human condition is not a complimentary one. There are two sources of sin and evil. that that we can look at, that I think comes to us from the truth of Scripture. And one of those sources is the external world in which we live, with all of its um, accumulated bad effects. And Paul addresses this outside world that influences us, and that draws us into that which is not godly. And the other is our own human nature that seems to be so prone to choose that which is not godly and not of God. And oftentimes leads us astray to the point that we find ourselves frozen in the midst of the snake's stare. Who has the power to break the stare of the snake? Who has that power? And and at that very point, it's Paul who comes to us in the wonderful letter to the Romans who speaks to us about a greater common denominator that he wants to share that does break the stare of the snake. This biblical answer that Paul is providing directs our attention to the sacrificial, redemptive death of Jesus, the Savior of the world. Paul said that what happened on the cross, and we read about it just today, unleashed this power that has the ability to radically transform lives. He used the language of the Passover. Did you hear it? He brought us all the way back to the Exodus story and he uplifted the Exodus story just like um, the early Hebrews put the, the blood of the Lamb above the doorpost and the angel of death passed over them. Paul uses the same language. Hear it again. They are now justified by the grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Whom God puts forward as a sacrifice of atonement by His blood, effective through faith. He had passed over the sins previously committed, and He justifies the one who has faith in Jesus. You know, the evidence of our justification has happened in a person's life in a remarkable way in this spiritual orientation that Paul is leading us toward. There's a new set of attitudes. There's a new perspective that Paul says that when when we change our focus from that which has our defeat in mind to the focus of that which is our victory, which is what Christ has done on the cross for us, then everything changes. When the fixation of Jesus on the cross brings about that greatest common denominator the experience of God's grace then we know what it means to see things new. You know there's nothing we have done that we cannot uh, know forgiveness for and the cross of Jesus has freed us from uh, the fixation on the snake and the snake's stare. You know no conversion in history has been quite the watershed event than the conversion of Paul. The one who wrote Romans for us, I want us to remember his life as this Pharisee who knew the law, who was perhaps a young up-and-coming in the ranks of the Pharisees, who saw himself as the one who was chosen to protect the synagogues from the influence of Christianity, who saw himself as the one who would persecute those who were trying to infiltrate the synagogues with Christianity. And then there was Stephen. Stephen, whom Paul met and Paul knew as this vibrant young follower of Jesus who was so capable of handling the Scripture in such a wonderful way, and yet when accused of being a Christian, Stephen did not deny his Lord. And Paul, this Pharisee, participates in the kangaroo court related to Stephen that led to the stoning. The scripture says that Paul held the cloaks of those who threw the stones. And Stephen, young Stephen's life was taken because of his faith. Now I don't think Paul just forgot that the next day. I think that that the understanding of what happened to Stephen and Stephen's strong faith that he would not deny lived with Paul as he got on that horse or whatever his ride was to be on that road to Damascus. And we know what happened there. That light that blinded him from heaven and that voice that came from heaven, the voice of Jesus that said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And and Paul knew he was in the presence of a different kind of gaze. A gaze of grace that caused him to be picked up literally and taken to uh, a Christian's home. And there he asked two important questions. Who are you, Lord? That question started on the road. And what do you want me to do? And we know that Paul reached the answer That you want me, Lord, to share your gospel throughout the world, not just to the Jews, but also to the Gentiles. And Paul became the great evangelist of the church. You you know, in in thinking about what's upcoming on Monday, when we're going to have this big conference here, Uniting Methodist Conference. it, It caused me to think of a conference I attended back in 2004 the General Conference in Pittsburgh. That was the first time I'd been elected, and probably the last time, to be a delegate to General Conference. And and that year was particularly contentious. And I remember that I was just so beaten down by the, the conversations that didn't seem to go anywhere, and how it seemed like we were so off base as to what we should be talking about as Methodists. I remember I was coming from the hotel. We were staying at the Weston Hotel, which was just kind of across the street from the convention center. And I was in a hurry and I was frustrated. And, and, and all of a sudden, I saw this little booth set up where a man was shining shoes, and one of my friends was getting his shoes shined. And I knew I was about to see Bill Henson. And Bill Henson always looked at your shoes first. He had this. Uh, unusual uh, traction to shined shoes and he wanted his staff's shoes to be shined and even when you left his staff he, he looked at your shoes so I thought well you know they need it and and I asked the shoe shine man I said uh, could I follow my friend here and be the next one and, and, and could I go get a cup of coffee could I still keep my place in line if I went and got a, a, a cup of coffee Could could I be next and The man said, sure, you can be next. That is, if somebody doesn't come up before you get back. (laughs) Well, I knew I was dealing with a character, and that was more important than getting a cup of coffee, so I just waited my turn. And when my friend's time was over, I climbed into the chair. And the man began to shine my shoes. And I remember he said, are you with the Methodists? I said, yes, I'm with the Methodists. Well, how's it going over there? I said, not too well. I said, um, there's a lot of conflict over there. You've probably noticed the people carrying the placards outside and on the inside, it's not, it's not much better. I mean, it just doesn't seem like we're, we're, we're getting to the main thing and that really has me frustrated. And then he said, You do know what the main thing is, don't you? And before I could answer, he said, the main thing is Jesus. Jesus is the main thing. And and, and then he looked up, and when he looked up, I noticed he had a scar that was six or eight inches long on his big, burly neck. And I wondered how many times someone had asked him how he got that scar. And I knew the story couldn't be good, so I decided not to ask him about the scar. But still looking into my eyes and breaking from his shoe-shining duty, he said, You know, I used to be an angry man. I hated everybody, and I especially hated white folk then he looked at me again and he said and you know what you know what Jesus taught me Jesus taught me that I had to love me before I could ever love him or anybody else and then he said Jesus taught me to love me that he loved me enough that he died on the cross for me and he told me that I could at least love me as much as he loved me Now that's called grace, he said. And it's God's love. A different love than we're capable of. That's a gift to all people. Even those people, he said, who are carrying those signs. And then he picked up his buffing cloth. And for those who've shined shoes or had shoes, this is the apex of the experience. He said, you know now I love me. And I even love you and I don't even know you. And I sure do love Jesus, he said. He saved my life. I put my faith in him and he never let me go. I put my faith in him every day, he said, as he continued to shine my shoes. And he never lets me go. He said, when I wake up in the morning, I say, Jesus, I love you. And I want you to send me to your folk who I can love today. And then with a pop of the rag, he said, done, sir. And I expected him to say that'll be $5. But he said, I want to pray with you. And then he put his big burly arm on my shoulder and he said, Jesus, lift my brother's spirits and have him go across the street to the Methodists. And tell him about the main thing. Have him tell him that, tell him that you're the main thing. Amen. Amen. I tipped him five bucks. Should have tipped him 500. Because I was a different person when I got out of his chair than the one I was when I sat down. Sometimes we just have to be reminded of what is the main thing. And the main thing is not the past that may have you affixed to that which is your failures. The main thing is a Lord who died for our redemption. Who has underscored the importance of God's grace that says you are loved, you are forgiven, you are mine. No matter what. I remember I, I stepped across the street and my spirit from that shoeshine experience was so light I found myself whistling a tune. Now, if my wife had been with me, she'd have said, quit whistling. So in thinking of Tammy, I decided I'd just sing. And I, I found myself walking across the street to the convention center singing the Methodist National Anthem. O, oh, four thousand for thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise, the glories of my God and King, the triumphs of His grace. My gracious Master and my God, assist me to proclaim, to spread through all the earth abroad, The honors of thy name. He breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for me. Amen, Mathis.